Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. In our day, everybody wants practical sermons from practical preachers, at least if they want sermons at all. Now, of course, what they mean by this is Christless, vague, moral lessons. They certainly do not want all that theology and doctrine and all of that stuff. After all, who wants to know who God is and how we are to live in light of that? Certainly not the world around us. Because I am constrained by Scripture concerning the nature of my messages, visitors who seek these, which is the majority of them, these practical lessons, they come once and then they leave disappointed, never to return again. But at least for this afternoon, I can say that if it is a truly practical sermon that you want, then you'll get one. But it's not going to come to you in the form of so many steps to a better you. No, this sermon is very practical because we are studying a book that records the history of the early church as it spread through a pagan empire in opposition to the devil. And why is this afternoon's lesson especially practical for all of us? Well, because if history does not repeat, it certainly rhymes. And the church's first century context is very much in consonance with our own, and this is especially true of our text for today. So in pursuit of these practical lessons this afternoon, we're going to get directly into it. I'm going to read the portion that we're going to be covering in chapter 14, which is in verses 1 through 7. For the sake, though, of context, I'm going to start back in verse 46 of the preceding chapter, chapter 13. After we have read all of this together, we're going to gain an understanding of the geography first and the historical context, and then we'll attend to some technical points And then we will see to the remaining exegesis and application and really get into the meat of it. And we're going to handle this portion in enumerated points. And actually, these points will, to some extent, also derive from chapter 13. I realized uh, after I delivered that sermon to you that I left some critical ground uncovered, so I will go back and uh, collect what I left there. So Acts 13, 46 And we'll go through chapter 14 and verse 7. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you, the unbelieving Jews in the synagogue again, repudiated it being the gospel, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation To the end of the earth, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. 
And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders should be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. And some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, which means putting them to death, of course, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So as stated, first we're going to attend to the geography now, having been driven out of Pisidian Antioch, they travel and begin ministering in Iconium, which is a not-so-short 80-mile jaunt to the southeast. Now, every place is a great place for the gospel to spread, but Iconium does have certain characteristics distinct to it that make this especially true. This is their equivalent of our New York City, in terms of diversity, it is a melting pot. The indigenous peoples were the Phrygians. The Greeks had also settled there, the Jews too, now the Romans as well. Acts 13.47 gives us this explicit statement. God has placed them, being the converted Jews, and in this instance most directly Paul and Barnabas, as a light for the Gentiles that they may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Here in Iconium, we see another excellent venue for the furtherance of this objective, and that is Iconium in a nutshell. We're moving through this quickly, but as I said, we're also going to handle all of the geography in one shot here at the top. Because Paul and Barnabas were expelled from Iconium, just as they were from Pisidian Antioch, we also need to consider the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region where they continued to preach the gospel. And with this, Paul and Barnabas have escaped the big city lights into a place and places much more agreeable to me. They are quieter. They are more provincial, small towns. I understand that Lycaonia is the region, so here you would think county. That'd be loosely equivalent. This is still all within the kingdom of Galatia, as in the book of Galatians. Lystra and Derby are the cities within these territories. Now, Lystra was about 18 miles away from Iconium, but more importantly, it is the home of some characters in the New Testament that I think you know by name, particularly a young man by the name of Timothy, to whom Paul wrote epistles, as well as his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, who are named in 2 Timothy, and they are referred to without being named directly in Acts 16. And it was quite possible that in this, which is their first trip to the city, that the Lord used them here to convert these individuals, that their faith derives from this visit. But moving forward from Lystra, they also travel another 40 miles southeast to Derbe, in which location we are later told that many disciples were made. And with that, your brief geography lesson for today concludes. 
And now let's establish a couple technical points, and we're going to move through these even more quickly than we did the portion on geography. So first off, going back to Acts 13 and verse 50, the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city that instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and constitute the group that will continue to do so are probably Gentile proselytes or the non-technical designation, those who fill it, of God-fearers. They have political clout that the Jews do not. These women of prominence are probably wives of leading political figures in Rome. Also, the apostles, as that term occurs in Acts 14.4, that is a common designation. It is not a technical one. Uh, Deacon is a good example of this effect. Deacon is a technical designation within a Christian framework, and we would apply a capital D to it. It also has a very loose and common definition, as is used at the wedding of Cana. They're just waiters of tables. So it is with apostles. Apostolos is used in classical uh, Greek literature to refer to merchant ships. It just means generically, as it is used generically, sent ones. Now, Apostle Big A can be applied to the Apostle Paul. It cannot be applied to Barnabas. Barnabas does not meet the standards. He was not visited directly by the Lord Jesus and commissioned directly by him. And so the only way that you know in the original language which usage is happening where is context. And so the context tells us that this is a generic use. All right, having laid what I hope to be a sufficient foundation, we are ready to continue the exegesis and begin the application, and we're going to do this in three points. Here is the meat and potatoes of our study. Point number one, very often it is the application of biblical texts and not merely the exegesis that separates the faithful preacher from the unfaithful one. Consider and understand that as a volume matter, Paul agrees far more with these synagogue goers in town to town then he does disagree with them. It would not be difficult for Paul to give these people a lecture on the religion of Yahweh that lasted many hours without saying a single thing that opposed their beliefs or his. These are not the Samaritans. There's a lot that they disagreed with with the Samaritans. The Samaritans only accepted the uh, Pentateuch. They rejected the prophets and even the Pentateuch they had a messed up understanding of. These people are much more in line. They all agree, for example, on the primacy of Moses' ministry as the mediator of the Old Covenant, and for them, the, the covenant that still was in play. They all agree on the necessity of a Messiah. They're all looking for that. They all even have a truncated concept of grace. They don't believe that they don't need any help in any way whatsoever from God. So Paul can give them something of grace and just sort of work around the edges, but he doesn't do that, does he? Going back to Acts 13, he goes right to the heart of the matter. Verses 38 and 39, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. This understanding of the law is leading them to grace. The law is that schoolmaster teaching them that they require grace, and it is grace that they find most offensive. They're very ill-disposed on account of this particular aspect of his teaching. And we are told further that Paul continues this message into Iconium. Acts 14.3 
They, Paul and Barnabas, spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of His grace. So the message was and continues to be what the law could not do. Grace can and only grace can. You are wholly reliant upon the Lord. You will not be pulling yourself up to heaven by your bootstraps. So here's a question for you, Christian. It's a really important question. If Paul only says true things, but he never gives this word of grace, would Paul have been found faithful by God? No. The question for every preacher behind a pulpit and every Christian in a conversation with their unbelieving neighbor is not ultimately, have I told the truth? It is, have I told those truths that are necessary for the saving of their souls? And if you have not, then you have not been truly faithful. Instead, you would have lied by omission. Now, in Paul's context, he had much in common with Jews, not salvation, truth, but much else. This dynamic exists for us as well with a couple different groups. Let me give you some of them, some groups that we would be tempted to build bridges to nowhere with in our day. Chief on the list has got to be Roman Catholics. I mean, we can pretend as staunch Protestants as we are that we have nothing in common with the Papists. That is just not true. We're all Trinitarians. We all hold, not in the same way, but to the authority of Scripture. We all believe in Jesus vaguely. And so we hold much in common. We could have conversations with these people that go on for a long duration where we never actually discuss anything that separates us. And oftentimes we do. Uh, to our shame. I was at an abortion rally, an anti-abortion rally a, a long time ago. I got asked to speak there and I was nobody from nowhere. I was just out there on a regular basis and so the Roman Catholic gentleman who put it together asked me to speak. And in my head, I thought, well, this is very clearly going to be a one and done, but yes, absolutely, I will. And I got there, and I was happy to see that, that prior to me speaking, there was another Protestant, and he was a man of note, a nationally recognized author, and I thought, oh, good, somebody else is going to give the gospel. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. He did not give the gospel at all. He spoke only about abortion. And I need you to understand, I was out there three days a week speaking against abortion and pleading for the lives of the unborn. That was not immaterial to me. But I'm in a setting here where I have 70 Roman Catholics listening to me in addition to a number of Protestants. There was zero chance that my focus was going to be on abortion, more so than the murder of souls, because I am a preacher of the gospel. And so I went through the law because they are legalists. You have failed with them if you have not done that. Because that is what damns them. Another group that we might encounter uh, with whom we have even more in common would be the Big Eva churchgoer. We have so much in common with these people that you could read their general faith statements from their churches online and not disagree with anything at all. Now they're very broad, very vanilla, so there wouldn't be enough there to disagree with, typically. But very often, these people 
are in contrast to the Roman Catholics antinomians. You will find that over and over and over again. Roman Catholics are trying to live like heaven to get to heaven. These people are living like hell and still believing they're going to get to heaven. There has been no change. There is no understanding of regeneration. And so you can have a conversation with them where you can agree on all kinds of things but never actually get to the heart of the matter. Never say, what does salvation produce? Changed heart. What is repentance? Repentance is a turning away from but in what respect, most fundamentally, in the mind? And who changes the mind and who changes the heart? It is Christ by a work of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a more controversial example. How about political idolatry? We really don't want to go after this one. My brother here, if I may say this, and I appreciated this, was afraid for me, and I, I did truly just appreciate it because I, I took it as care for my soul. He was concerned because I was going to anti-lockdown protest. Now, am I adamantly against lockdowns? Oh, brother. Oh, brother, am I? Did I preach anything about that when I was at these protests? Nope. Because unbelievers were in my hearing. And so I said over and over and over again, I would think less about the condition of the country than I would about the condition of your own souls. You will all stand before Christ, and conservatism will not save you. Only Christ saves you. Oh, but we share so much in common. Oh, but they have a Donald Trump shrine, and that is not an exaggeration. He is their God, and he cannot remain their God, or they are enemies of the living God. The biggest threat for folks like you, folks who have been taught the truth, is not from men who speak obvious lies. For the most part, you're going to recognize these immediately and respond accordingly, and amen. But the biggest threat to inform biblically literate Christians is from men who speak rightly but do not say enough. You need to understand that heterodoxy and heresy make for terrible cover for cowardice and greed in many circles, circles that I come from, American fundamentalism. Many of these pastors will speak enough truth to satisfy the pretension that they are faithful ministers, but not so much truth that they will risk their jobs for it. You want to keep your job, your income as a pastor? You don't tell overt lies. You just withhold critical saving truths. And one of the ways that you manage this is, of course, to piously attack the men who are. You must paint these men as brutish instead of brave or faithful. Otherwise, you will be seen as the coward that you are. Beware of any teacher who says, yeah, but he doesn't have to say that now. Or he doesn't have to say that in this setting. Or he doesn't have to say it in this way. Or we need to just build bridges. And there is truth to some of that. For sure, we do need to build bridges. Paul does. I went through that with you when we discussed that. He starts with the patriarchs because they hold that in common. But that bridge that begins with the patriarch, it is built ultimately to God. God is the terminus through Christ. And you're not going to get to Christ, though, if you don't remove the roadblocks that exist among a certain group or a certain individual. 
If you come to the fair and you sit with me, you'll see this. I will typically begin by asking people what faith tradition they come from. And then I know from there how to move, how to direct the conversation, how to get to their particular stumbling block and force them to trip over it. Because if not, there is no getting to God. There is no salvation. Now, full disclosure, I, I don't want to paint a pretty picture here at the expense of the truth. If you don't pretend that what you have in common with unbelievers of certain stripes is greater in effect than what you don't, the outcome is going to break bad in many cases. Case in point, Acts 13, 49 and 50, the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Acts 14.2, the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Acts 14.4 and 5, the people of the city were divided by the gospel and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles and an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them. I say that because I want to be honest with you. That's often going to be the case. It is also the case, however, that if you withhold those critical distinctions, there is no salvation in your message with respect to the people that you are speaking to. And so that means that the following is not going to happen either. Acts 13, 48 and 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Acts 14.1 as well. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. Look, if you are a Christian long enough, you're going to be placed into settings where this principle is tested. For example, you may find yourself at work greatly outnumbered, and I would assume that you would be in a pagan culture like this. But then there is that one person who is at least religious, who at least holds to a Judeo-Christian worldview, and they don't actively hate you. And so you don't want to estrange yourself from them, create any kind of impediments. You at least have some semblance of peace with somebody and you don't want to compromise that by telling them that they're enemies of the gospel, by loving them enough to tell them that they are estranged from the living God because they reject the Lord Jesus, and so you just keep quiet. You're happy to have your one friend. Christian, you cannot do that. Maybe you have family members that are religious but are unconverted. And when you get together, if you only say true things that you hold in common, there will be peace. But if you say the true things about what separates them from God, you're going to compromise that peace to the consternation and the disapproval of the rest of your family. We have all been tempted by the voice of the devil. As he whispers to us in cunning, you can keep your beliefs intact. You don't have to compromise a thing, but here and now it's okay to just build bridges. That is a compromise. And understand that the bridges built in that way all terminate in hell. So instead of listening to the voice of the devil on this, you need to hear the voice of God. Saying to you, and this is where you insert your name, insert name here, do you love me more than these? The answer for Paul is clear. 
as is his love for this particular group of people. I have never, and you know, I'd like to say I'll, I'll reach a point of sanctification where I can honestly say the following, but I don't see it happening. I have never and do not believe I will ever say that I wish I could be accursed for the sake of a particular people group. He said that. This is that people group. And still he does this because he loves them, but preeminently because he loves the Lord Jesus and will not withhold what he has been commanded to give them. And you cannot either. Point number two, every Christian must be willing to become a criminal for Christ's sake. And I really wish that that were hyperbole or that I did not mean it or this were some device that speakers and preachers use often to yank people from their lethargy like a, hey, wake up! It's not, unfortunately. It is real. And a literal statement. The number of lawless acts as defined by men that have been committed by the Christian church in the book of Acts up until now is mounting. Peter and John in Acts 4 saying that they would obey God rather than men. And those men are the delegated authorities in the Roman Empire who have legitimate power and are exercising that legitimately as far as men conceive of it. You have Stephen receiving capital punishment slash murder, depending on how you look at that, for committing the crime of blasphemy. You have Peter escaping jail in Acts chapter 12, aided by his accomplice in crime, which is no less than one of God's holy angels. Or as here, Acts 13, 50 through 52, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium to commit the same lawless acts there. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And Acts 14, 4 through 7, it is even more clear here that you are talking about political leaders. The people of the city were divided by the gospel and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers, the political powers that be, to mistreat and to stone them. They became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe in the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, in our natural state as Christians, and in a fallen but reasonably moral societal context, we can, we should, we do, have a very strong aversion to breaking the laws of man, even if they are not directly in step with God's law, so long as they are not in opposition to it. An example of this would be our Lord teaching, if a meaning Roman soldier demands that you walk one mile with him, walk two for the sake of your testimony. Act in humility. Don't go out of your way to create conflict with police, with political leaders. Do the opposite of that. Go out of your way to avoid that kind of conflict. That our obedience to the laws of man is predicated on them behaving to some reasonable extent as ministers of God or deacons of God per Romans 13. Now there is a great difficulty, and this should be acknowledged, in knowing exactly where that line is in a fallen world. There isn't a human government on the face of the earth that does that in the way that they ought. But that doesn't then justify anarchy on our part. So it's hard. But with this issue, as fuzzy as the line may be, there is a point where it has been so thoroughly crossed 
that the people of God must no longer equivocate. It does not mean that we flout their every precept from that point forward. We are still operating from the perspective that we want as much peace as we can have with them. But it does mean that after that point, we need to be prepared moving forward to break their laws as the need arises. It has become criminal in this country in many respects to parent your own children as the Lord has commanded you. It is criminal in some places now to do things like dead name your child. Do you know what dead naming your child is? It is continuing to call them by the name that you gave them as their parents and not another name that they have invented which is consistent with a fake sexual identity. If that is criminality, then you must become a criminal. It was criminal in many places in this country to go to church for a time. If that is criminality, then you must become a criminal. Left on this track, it will soon be criminal to preach the gospel. Congress has already approved a bill that would have accomplished that, but it did not make it through the Senate. They are not going to stop. It will also be criminal to aid and abet those who have been prosecuted for doing this as they flee. And you may have noticed that we are not so much a land of laws now, are we? But a land of political will. So they don't need it to pass Congress. They'll do it anyways. We are at that point. You've got to understand that we are at that point. Know the signs of the times. But take heart. We were an outlawed faith in the first century and we're on the cusp of being it in the 21st century now. We've been here before. The Lord has carried us through. Right here on the precipice is the time when you need to settle these things in your hearts and minds. Because if you don't, then you'll find yourself clinging to a nostalgic fantasy of an America that no longer exists and doing this at the expense of Christian brethren. Will I harbor these criminals? Yes. You are criminals for the sake of the gospel? Absolutely. And I pray that they will harbor me as well and my family. Point number three. Strategic retreat is a legitimate category for Christians who are under persecution. Strategic retreat is a legitimate category for Christians who are under persecution. Acts 14, 4 through 6, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. Emphasis upon fled. Do you know that there is actually a difference between martyrdom to the glory of God and foolishly throwing away your life to the benefit of the devil? And let's start here by defining martyrdom. Martyrdom is when God glorifies himself by delivering one of his children into the hands of Satan's children to be put to death for Christ's sake. When God delivers us over. Now that's my definition and I'm quite certain that you can find many, many better ones, but hopefully that suffices. But using that definition... Would Paul and Barnabas, staying in Iconium, instead of fleeing to the preserving of their lives and therefore dying by stoning, qualify as martyrdom? Well, I would not say no. But I would not say that if they did so, that would be as much in the center of that definition as we would like. Because although God would still be sovereign over their deaths, and they would still in that instance be there at least in part, 
because of the gospel, they would also have had a much more direct role in bringing about their deaths, which is not the objective from our perspective. Martyrdom, in fact, should never be an objective. For God, with respect to us, it may well be. But we are not God. For us, it should be viewed as honorable and gain, as in for us to live as Christ and to die as gain, certainly to die for him. It is a testament of our love for our Savior. It is a sweet gift offered to him by his saints in times and occasions of persecution. It is the ultimate way in which we might follow our Lord and pick up our cross but it is not, again, for us from our perspective a goal. Goal for us, being that we are not God, who knows the ends from the beginning, is Acts 13.49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. And Acts 14.5-7, through 7, and when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. There they continued to preach the gospel. That is the goal. So should and must Christians be willing to die for Christ? Absolutely. Should they understand martyrdom as a gift that the saints give their Savior? Absolutely. But the only martyr in the Christian faith who rightly pursued martyrdom was Christ because he was both a martyr and an atonement. His death was unique because the result of his death was unique. And so he precipitated that in a way that we are not to and that you will not see the apostles doing. Now, ultimately, Paul will actually take steps that lead to his death, but he will do this unwittingly. If this man had not appealed to Caesar, he might have been let go, but he did appeal to Caesar because he wanted justice. That's not what I'm talking about. That is still used in the sovereign plan of God. He could not have known that, did not know that, but here you see him taking steps to preserve his life for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. Let me here make clear that Paul and Barnabas were as far from cowards as men, as, as men could possibly be and that it was not, in fact, cowardice or anything, anything like it that motivated their strategic withdrawal. And for this, look first to verse 3 of chapter 14. Therefore, emphasis added, therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So they decide to stay based upon whatever happens to be wrapped up in that therefore. Therefore is a critical term in Bible study. You may have been told this, and I suspect that you have. Whenever you see this term in Scripture, you should ask, what is the therefore, therefore? What is the antecedent that makes sense of the outcome? Well, to start to consider this and to get one half of it, look to verse 1. Again, this isn't the whole thing, but this is one half. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. And so that's part of their motivation to stay, and it's an essential part. Without it, them staying would not make sense. On this part, we have no problem reconciling. The Lord has blessed them to the effect of revival, and so, of course, they want to continue there to help those that have been converted. But it is the next part of this equation 
The next aspect of their motivation where some commentators get a little tripped up on, and this continues into verse 2, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. So, in other words, there was a really big fight. The poo hit the fan. Everything got real nasty, real fast, so they decided on account of this, you know, Iconium is lovely this type of year. I think we'll stay. Certain modern commentators find the conflict of verse 3 to be so irreconcilable with their desire to stay on account of it that they have conjectured with absolutely no manuscript evidence whatsoever that there must be a corruption of the original text, that something that Luke wrote somewhere else has made its way into this portion. It is disjointed. The transmission of the text somehow, some way was corrupted. Again, there's no evidence of that. That's just what they assume because they can't put the pieces together here. Now, if I may, let me speak to these men who apparently do not understand much about the sex that they theoretically belong to. Explain something about men in general. God created us to enjoy the fight. If you are a mother of boys and your boys or boy is young, you may find yourself in a circumstance where he comes to you and you discover that he was in a setting where a fight broke out and then he remained and indeed engaged in that social context all the more after the fight broke out. Now, ladies, you are right to be frustrated and you're right to spank his rear end for doing that, but you need not wonder why he stayed for the fight. He stayed for the fight because there was a fight. That's the reason. This is how God made him, by the way. Not that he would use his God-given aggression to squander it on foolishness as he has. That he does because he's a little sinner. But this is God-given nonetheless. What you're seeing, though, in Paul and Barnabas' response to conflict is why he gave us this instinct toward conflict. You are seeing this aspect of our nature as men redeemed. Paul and Barnabas, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have punched Satan right in the face in the form of revival. And now Satan gets back up, stammers to his feet, and lands a sort of soft left jab, and they're just going to stay down? They're going to leave? They're going to fold? No. No, no, no. They're going to take exactly the same posture that King David did before he was King David. They're going to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. What's going to be done for the man that kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Only here the armies or the enemies of God rather are not the uncircumcised, but they are the circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas, having been circumcised in heart as well as in flesh, will not abide their opposition simply being permitted to blaspheme Christ without a testimony of truth remaining to counter it. And in fact, even after they leave this region, they're going to make sure that the saints who have sprung up are going to have pastors to care for them, and we'll see that in a future lesson. But to speak one more word to the commentators who cannot reconcile conflict-provoking fight instead of flight, let me say... This is how men used to be commonly before masculinity was treated as a vestigial remnant of a less sophisticated, more primitive age. 
But the fact is we're not in as sophisticated an age as we think that we are. And the dynamics here really have not changed. That whole concept is satanic. It is a design of the devil to emasculate men so that he can run over civilizations and churches because there are no men left to protect them. The devil is as active in our day as he was in theirs, as he is in every age. And so we must be bold as they were, but not foolish. Again, they will strategically retreat eventually. And that is in no way cowardice. Cowardice is soft-pedaling truth. It is lying by omission in order to avoid persecution or tremendous conflict. Or it is flat-out apostasy to save your own rear end. On the contrary, Paul and Barnabas are consistently from town to town so bold and so effective as ministers of the gospel that they are pushing their enemies to the same point that James and Peter pushed the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. There isn't anything left to do but murder them. And so there isn't anything left for them to do but die. And it isn't until that point that they move on. Because again, martyrdom is to be wrought by God. It is not to be sought by men. And so Paul and Barnabas rightly leave at the point when all they have left to give these people is their lives. And eventually they will give them their lives, but that time is not now. When it does come, it will be God who creates the conditions that result in it. It is now, though, their responsibility to flee in order to continue giving others eternal life through the ministry of Christ's gospel. And it is the responsibility of their fellow Christians to harbor these criminals and become criminals as they do in order to protect their lives. I wish that this sermon had not been as practical as it is. I wish that we were not where we are, sincerely. I wish that my children did not have to grow up in the world that they are going to have to grow up in unless we prove to be Nineveh instead of Sodom. But unless you are blind to what's happening around you, you know that it is happening around you. Christian, are you ready? Or are you distracted? Are you so enveloped by the materialism of your age that you will be rolled right over when this happens? Are you so ineffective for the gospel now that it won't even matter that it happens? Because you aren't anything that the devil would be concerned with, and so you won't find that kind of opposition. Don't wait for the fight to come to you. This, by the way, this is not ultimately bad. I lament the suffering that's going to happen in this world on account of this, but this is exactly what should happen. If Christians are Christians, we will create this kind of conflict. Either the devil will subjugate us, he will enslave us, or we will punch him so hard in the face that he will be forced to take this kind of position against us. And ultimately, we will, through the power of Christ, overthrow him as they did then, ultimately. This isn't a bug, it's a feature. Not pursuing conflict for conflict's sake, but pursuing truth which results inevitably in conflict and then not running from it when it does occur, but strategically removing yourselves from situations that no longer have any value.
going to have to learn these lessons. We're going to have to learn them well. Because the time is drawing nigh. Heavenly Father, I praise you and I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it prepares us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would take it and impart it to our souls. That we may withstand the devil in the coming days. And I praise you and I thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.